seated. If you were here last Sunday morning, uh, you will be aware that we uh, launched, I guess might be the right word, our theme for 2017, which is on the wall, which is first the kingdom. And uh, going to be trying to keep that fairly up front in our minds throughout the year. And uh, with, with that in mind, I'm continuing a little on that theme uh, about how the Lord needs to be first. And in the, in the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments that we are given is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. In other words, between God and us, He is the first in line. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And in a similar uh, concept or understanding, when Jesus was tempted by the, the devil in the New Testament, part of His response to Satan was, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. First, the kingdom. And if we are going to be a part of the kingdom of God, if He is going to be our king, then worship belongs to Him alone. Not to Him and then other options, but to Him alone, and nothing else can be, as He said, before Him. Worship is very important to God. I got one amen. Let me say that again. Worship is very important to God. Not just the 30 minutes on a Sunday or a Wednesday before we teach or preach, but worship as a part of who we are and the way we live is very important to God because it is key or a, a key part of our relationship with Him. But unlike just about everything else in a Christian's life, worship does not occur in isolation. It does not happen. You can worship God on your own. You can. But worship doesn't occur in isolation, but it occurs together. And so it is not only a key part of our relationship with the Lord, but also of our relationship with each other. The beginning of Acts chapter 3 tells us that Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. Hebrews 10 and 25 says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We use that verse to encourage people to be in the house of God when we have service, and so we should. But the together there is more than just our services. There's more to it than simply when we get together for church. And there is a principle that is strongly emphasized in that verse that says that as we see the day approaching, as it gets closer to the return of Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible makes it very clear that nobody knows the day or the hour when he shall return. But we do know that today we are closer than we were yesterday. That we can say with confidence. And so if we are closer, then much more we ought to exhort one another and much more we ought to be together. Amen. And the things I'm going to minister this morning... We've touched on some of them recently in our series on Lessons from Grace late last year. And uh, I'm not wanting to continue on the same vein because I lack anything else to preach. But I believe with all my heart that God has been doing and is doing, in an ongoing sense, a work at the foundational level of our hearts. I know He has been in mine. I know there's things that He's been digging up that I've probably laid untouched for a long time. And it needs to continue. 
And if you were at General Conference, some of the ministry was in line with what some of God has been doing in our local church leading up to conference and also going on from conference. That shouldn't surprise us. It's the same spirit. It's the same God. It's his church and he's working and letting us know what he is doing. Amen. Amen. You know, when we, we, I was watching our music team working together this morning and very grateful for our music team, but I counted about seven people on this platform, not, not including me because I'm not part of the, the worship team. We all are in one sense, but you know what I'm saying. Musicians and singers, there were seven people across this platform. Now, they've all practiced, particularly the musicians at home during the week. If they haven't, they should have. They also get together to practice before the service. And the reason for that is when they work and they are in the worship service, they want to work together. You may be familiar with the expression, sometimes people will talk about a worship team or possibly another musical group, and they'll say that the, the team is tight. That doesn't mean that, well, they may not be very generous, but that's, that's not what it's talking about. The application there is that there's not a lot of gap between them. There's a togetherness. You can't pick a lot of mistakes. You can't see that somebody's out of beat or off key or whatever the case may be. They're tight together. And with that thought and with our theme of first the kingdom, this morning I want to preach about worshipping together. Worshipping together. Genesis chapter 4, starting to read at verse 1. It says, And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. <clears throat> and she again, excuse me, <clears throat> she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? Or why have you got a long face? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not, am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Bless the Lord. Genesis chapter 4 <clears throat> records an account of two brothers that came together to worship God. At a certain time they came to worship God together and as we just read one brother and his sacrifice was accepted the other was rejected and the rejection it's important that we notice that the rejection was of both Cain and of his offering Cain and his offering were rejected and what that tells me is that there was a pre-existing condition in Cain's heart when you go to get health insurance or travel insurance they're very quick to ask you if you have any pre-existing medical conditions because they want to be sure that they're not 
that you're not a high risk. You know, if, if I was to pay $100 for a travel insurance policy and, and then have a, a very serious heart problem that was pre-existing and that health insurance company had to pay out thousands for my treatment, that's been a very poor investment on their behalf. And so they, they very carefully ask you and they let you know if you have a pre-existing condition and you do not declare it at this policy, you will not be covered. And they find out that you actually had this problem before you bought the health insurance they will not cover you for that because it was pre-existing. Cain came to the altar with a pre-existing heart condition because not only was his offering, his sacrifice rejected, but so was he. And that lets me know that there was his actions and his motives were not what God required. And you read on, so two brothers came. It doesn't tell us if their altars were exactly side by side, but it seems that the offerings took place at a similar time and in a similar location. One was accepted and one was rejected. And then Cain has a confrontation with God. God says to Cain, why do you have a long face? What is wrong with you? Why, you, know, you, you know how people can, you can tell sometimes looking at people when they're not doing too good. Some people are better at masking how they're feeling than others. But you don't always have to have the discernment of spirits to tell when a couple have had a fight in the car on the way to church. Sometimes they hit that door and everybody knows. Cain had a long face. Cain's countenance was fallen. The Lord said to him, if you do the right thing, you'll be accepted. He said, it's fairly simple, Cain. If you do what you know is required. God never requires things of us that we are ignorant of. Cain knew what was expected. But for whatever his reason, whatever the condition of his heart was, he did not do what was expected. And the Lord challenged him. And Cain's response to God's challenge only confirmed the condition of his heart. We do not see any repentance or any, God, I'm sorry, let me make it right, let me bring a better... You don't see any of that. You see Cain struggling and resisting against God. But then we're told, and sometimes we read over this, but then we're told that Cain talked with his brother Abel. I'm very curious to know how that conversation went. How, whether Cain was complaining to Abel about his rejection or whether he was telling Abel he didn't think it was fair. Whatever the contents of that conversation were, they didn't do anything to calm Cain down. They didn't do anything to make him feel better about himself. In fact, it seems that the conversation got intense enough that Cain's anger, his wrath became enraged and inflamed and it boiled over into murder of his brother. And when Cain came to worship with a wrong heart and stood beside his brother at their respective altars, what was supposed to be worshipped together ended up in a brother being murdered. Amen. And while this is, in our eyes, a tragic story, and it certainly is, there's an underlying warning or principle that we can easily miss. And that is this, that the offering of praise and worship or of sacrifice needs to come from a heart that is repentant and broken before God. Because if it's offered from a corrupt platform, it will destroy rather than strengthen. Amen. 
We spoke on a Wednesday night recently about change and wanting to change and wanting God to change us and how important repentance is in initial change and our salvation in being born again, there has to be a repentance, but how it is equally important and required for ongoing change, for transformation, for spiritual maturity. And this, when you look into the scripture, this is a principle that you will find woven throughout both Old and New Testaments, that when we come to God, now, when you read sacrifice and offerings in the Old Testament, when you read that in your mind, if you will substitute praise and worship, it will help you to understand. Because our praise and worship is our sacrifice. Again, not just the songs we sing, but who we are. That's why Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Sacrifice and worship are inseparable, but the essentiality, the necessity of a correct platform when you offer something to God, your soul could depend upon it. When you look in the Old Testament and you look at the sacrificial system, once a year on the Day of Atonement, many of you know that the high priest, not just any priest, but the high priest, had to take that, the blood from that sacrifice and go in behind the veil within the tabernacle to the mercy seat of God and sprinkle the blood of that sacrifice upon that solid gold mercy seat. And if he did everything correctly and that sacrifice was accepted, the nation's status, if you like, or their relationship with God was maintained and kept together for the next 12 months. But what sometimes we overlook or we may not, some of you may not realize is that before... He offered sacrifice for the nation. He went in himself for himself and his family. In other words, he had to be right before he offered worship on behalf or of with somebody else. It's there for a reason. David recorded in two different Psalms. In Psalm 41 and 9, he said, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Most commentators suggest that he was writing about Ahithophel, who was one of his wise counselors, who, for reasons that it would possibly seem, was an unresolved issue in Ahithophel's heart. When David's son Absalom rebelled against him, Ahithophel betrayed his kings and switched sides. And David said, you were my friend. We were in this together. And we know that Judas fulfilled those verses of Scripture prophetically in the New Testament. But also in the 55th Psalm, talking about enemies that he had, or people that had done him wrong, David said, it was not an enemy that reproached me. Then I could have borne it, I could have taken it. It wasn't somebody that hated me, that did magnify himself against me. Otherwise, I could have taken care of that as well. But he said, but it was you. He said, a man... Mine equal, my guide and mine acquaintance. He said, we took sweet counsel together. We went to the house of God in company. We worshipped together. We went to the house of God together. And he said, it's because of your betrayal that it hurts so much. It's not some random stranger. It's not my enemy. I expect them to hate me. But he said it was because of you. And we know that Judas is the prophetic fulfillment of these examples in the New Testament because the Bible tells us that as they sat at what we now refer to as the Last Supper, 
as they sat at the Passover feast, Jesus took bread, dipped it in the sop, dipped it in the, the gravy, we would probably say, the dish they were eating, and passed it to Judas, indicating that he was the betrayer. Because something had entered into his heart. We need to realize that three years possibly before that, every year on that same date, Judas had sat there and had the same meal with Jesus. The Passover is not just a meal. It's a sacred thing to the Jews. It is a part of their thanksgiving to God. It is a part of their worship. And when Judas sat at meet with Jesus in a place that was supposed to be gratitude and appreciation and thanksgiving and worship because his heart was corrupt, it brought his destruction about. Amen. Hallelujah. He'd been with Jesus for three to three and a half years. By now they had worshipped together. Amen. Acts chapter 4, if you will turn there, please. We'll start to read at verse 32. The church is in the midst of uh, a great, I guess, launch, birth, beginning. Acts 2 is not long before and thousands of people have been born again and added to the church and the Lord is doing great things and there's a move of God on the people. In Acts 4 and 32, it says, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, which by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted, the son of Consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, we've taught on this before. This passage is not designed to teach us all to sell our houses, sell our cars, sell our bikes, sell our whatever you have, and bring it to the house of the Lord. That's not the principle here, but there is a, there is a greater principle here in that they had all things in common, and such was their desire for God and the body of Christ that the things of this world, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. The things of this world were secondary. They were no longer primary. And Barnabas is recorded as having sold some land, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But then when you read on through that chapter break into chapter 5, we read the infamous story of Ananias and Sapphira, of how they also sold a possession and kept back part of the price. The two of them agreed together. They schemed together. They brought the money to the apostles in front of everybody and basically said, we've done what Barnabas did. And Peter, by the unction and the anointing of the Holy Ghost, said to Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart? And we know that the Lord took Ananias' life right then and there. And then his wife came in a little while later, not knowing what had taken place, and Peter said, did you do this? Is this how much you sold the land for? And she said, yes. And again, bang, the consequences. The consequences of an offering of worship 
from a wrong platform. You see, Barnabas' love for God, Barnabas was freshly born again. I think we can assume that fairly safely. He's freshly baptized in Jesus' name, got the Holy Ghost, loves God, loves everybody. Amen. But his love for God found expression in worship. That blessed his brethren. Ananias and Sapphira demonstrated a love for the brethren that actually exalted themselves. And what appeared visibly to be the same was very, very different. And so what could have been worshipped together actually brought destruction. Amen. Bless the Lord. Matthew chapter 5, if you'll go there, please. Matthew 5 and 21. It says, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. Referring to the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka or Raka, however you actually pronounce that, the, the meaning has to do with telling somebody they're worthless and without value shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. The word fool here is not just about an ignorant person or somebody that isn't very intelligent, but when the most commentators suggest that it's, it's, it's the ultimate insult that the person is void of anything to do with God. They don't know God. They don't have a relationship with God. They're, they're a reprobate. And then verse 23 says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, Leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way, and first be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Now, I'm not wanting so much to focus on the process here, but on the principle that is here. The instruction Jesus gives is that when you bring an offering, when you approach worship, and there is an issue with a brother, that you are to stop what you're doing, to leave it there, to make it right, and then offer. Now what is important, and again, I'm not going to talk about the process and how all that should and shouldn't take place, but what is important here is that Jesus draws a direct connection between worship from a, with, a, with something in it that's not right and murder. You reach back to Cain and Abel and you find the same principle. Worship with corruption brings destruction. And it's, it's not just about everybody living happily ever after. There is something very powerful that happens spiritually here. That when we bring our worship to the Lord, and we bring our offerings, particularly when we worship together, we need to make sure we do so with a right heart. We need to make sure we do so with a right platform, or that which ought to bring Him glory will bring us destruction. There's a reason that the Lord said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill, and directly connected that with bringing an offering with a right heart and a right spirit. That's not a coincidence. It's a powerful thing. Amen. Go with me to Genesis chapter 37, if you would, and I'm going to finish up with this section of the Old Testament. 
beginning of Genesis chapter, we're going to pick out several portions over about seven or eight chapters. But at the beginning of chapter 37, we, we read about Jacob. Jacob's life has been something of a dysfunctional story almost from start to finish. Uh, from his childhood, there were issues within his family between favoritism between siblings and mom and dad. Uh, some of that was, there was prophecy that was involved, but there were people that were meddling in that, and that's a lesson for another time. Jacob ends up having to leave his family home and in a very quick hurry because he's betrayed his brother and his brother wants to kill him. He ends up moving to where his uncle lives. His uncle turns out to be even bigger deceiver than Jacob was. Jacob is tricked into marrying one of the daughters he doesn't want to marry, then has to work another seven years for the other daughter that he did want to marry. The crazy thing is, over time he found out that the first girl was better than the second girl anyway, but that, again, is another lesson. There are kids being born to both these wives and their handmaids. It's just, it's got disaster written all over it. It's kind of like, it would be an example of, you know, you find a psychiatrist would possibly use it as an example of things that shouldn't happen. But the thing that's important is this, that we have, one of the things we need to remember, this is not my main point, but one of the things we have to remember is in the midst of all of that dysfunction, that was God's chosen vessel and his chosen vehicle to bring about a nation, to bring about his word, and also to manifest himself in the flesh. And so the principle there is if you're waiting for everything to be perfect before you think God can move or before you can get your life sorted out, you will wait till you die. Because in the midst of that dysfunction, God was still directing traffic. He didn't like everything they did, but he was still involved and influencing. And in the midst of this church, with my issues and your issues, he's still here. He's still directing. He's still ordaining what takes place. Amen. And most of you will know that Joseph's favorite son, Joseph's favorite son, Jacob's favorite son, there's a lot of names in this thing and I'm guaranteed to mess up several times. But Jacob's favorite son was one of the sons when he was older and that was Joseph who was born of Rachel. And that favoritism was there for everybody to see. It wasn't, oh, we think it's his favorite. Every, all the brothers knew that Joseph was the favorite son. And because of that, it just added some more dysfunction to their dysfunction. The brothers hated Joseph. And you read, you pick, there's a, a, an account, I guess, you pick up in about halfway through this chapter where Joseph is at home with Jacob. The older boys are all off looking after the sheep in a nearby area. And Jacob says, you know, basically go and see how your brothers are doing, see how the, the flocks are doing, bring back a report. And Joseph goes at his, brother, at his father's instruction eventually finds his brethren, and when they see him coming, how did they know he was coming the long way off? Because he was the only one that had a rainbow coat. Everybody else was monochrome. They are probably all in browns and whatever was easy to make. But Joseph had fancy clothes. He, they, they, they recognized that coat because that coat in many ways was the symbol of their hatred for Joseph. And so Joseph's coming maybe humming a tune, singing along, but his brothers are saying, here comes the dreamer. Here comes the dreamer. And they, they actually discuss killing him. They discuss killing him. And so what happens is, 
instead of killing him, Reuben, I think, was the oldest brother, says, no, let's not kill him. And they put him in a pit. Put him in a pit in the ground, put a stone over the top, or make him so he can't get out. He's trapped in there. And then Reuben, it seems, goes off to do something a little bit further away because he's not right there. And in this interim period, while Reuben is away, let's read it. Let's read what the scripture says. Where are we? Okay. Verse 25 of Genesis 37. And they sat down to eat bread. And they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? That's pretty cold. What will we get out of it by killing him? No good for us. So then, so then Judah says, Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand bear him, so we won't have killed him, we'll have just sold him. And his brothers were content. They thought this was a good plan. Now, possibly during your life when you were growing up, if you had the opportunity to sell one of your brothers and sisters, you may have taken that. But the, the cold-heartedness of this conduct and this attitude towards their younger brother, they would sell him knowing that it meant slavery. It didn't mean moving out of town and getting a job somewhere. It meant slavery. It meant that he was sold as a commodity. He was the value of an animal, not a human being. And so they sold Joseph. They made a deal. They lined their pockets with silver. Reuben comes back, the older brother. He looks in the pit. Joseph's not there. He finds out what's happened. And they have to come up with a scheme to tell Dad. So they get that coat. They tear it up. They, they dip it in some animal blood. And they go back to Jacob with a lot of fake sorrow on their faces. And they say, we found this. Is this Joseph's coat? How many other kids in the neighborhood had one that looked like that? Of course it was Joseph's coat. And Jacob was heartbroken at his favorite son. And he, he spoke of going down to the grave in sorrow and how there was no consolation. He would not be comforted. And so, and then from there, the chapter 37 basically finishes with them bringing the bad news to dad and, and, and Joseph being sold into slavery in Egypt. And then almost seemingly out of place, chapter 38 tells us a story that doesn't really fit in the narrative, but it does. It talks to us about Judah, again, same brother, who had some sons and they died. And the, you, you can read it yourself, but the, long, the, end of the, the summary is that Judah ends up in an immoral relationship with a young lady who was his daughter-in-law, she becomes pregnant with twins. Again, you want to talk about dysfunction. She becomes pregnant with twins and has two boys. One named Pharez and the other one named something or other, Zara. And they're important as well. Because you will see if you look in the New Testament, even through this dysfunction, Pharez is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. He is in the lineage of the Messiah. Amen. So... To make a couple of points before we move any further, Judah, there's a reason that Judah is named. Who can tell me what the name Judah means? Anybody? Praise. That's right. Exaltation, thanksgiving, praise, worship. That's what Judah means. So the brother whose name meant praise and worship sells the younger brother into slavery for his own benefit and for his own profit. Then he gets involved in a moral relationship. Let me tell you, sin always goes downward and takes you further than you'll go. And these two boys are born. 
and that chapter's just sort of squeezed in there in the middle. But then you get to verse chapter 39, and we, we, we sorry, 30, yeah, 39, we, we find out that, that Joseph somehow, without the Holy Ghost, manages to keep a right attitude while he's a slave. I can't manage to keep a right attitude with the Holy Ghost sometimes. But Joseph keeps the right attitude and finds himself being elevated to running Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife is a nasty piece of work. She frames Joseph for something he didn't do. He goes to prison. I don't even want to imagine what an Egyptian prison was like that many years BC. But he goes to prison, and even in prison, he finds himself being elevated because of his attitude and his maturity to a place of seniority in the prison, to a point that one day two of Pharaoh's former servants come to him, and I'm, I'm not trying to take, I could spend hours telling the story because I love it, but, but I'm not going to spend all day. Two of, of Pharaoh's former slave servants, employees come to him, and they say, we've had dreams, we don't know what they mean. And Joseph basically says, well, dreams belong to God, tell me what they mean, and we'll see if God will show me what they are. And they have these two dreams, and one of them dreams, the two interpretations are that one's going back to his job in the palace, and the other one's going to be killed. The two dreams come to pass. And Joseph says, please remember me, and they don't. He's, he's what, he was having what we would call a run of really bad luck. Started with his brothers, then into part of his house, then in the prison. But then what happens is Pharaoh has a dream. You see, God, in the midst of all this chaos, God is there. God is there. Pharaoh has a dream, and it troubles him, and he wants to know what it's all about, and none of his wise men and magicians can tell him. And then, I think it's the butler who was in the prison, a light bulb goes on, and he says, Hey, I remember when I was in jail, there was this guy that we had dreams, and he told us what it was all about. Pharaoh's desperate. So they send for Joseph, they bring him out, they, they de-louse him and whatever bugs were growing on him in prison, give him a shower and a shave and a nice suit, and they hurriedly bring him in before Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, this is what's happened. Joseph said, this is what the dreams mean. And the dreams meant that there was going to be seven years of incredible harvest and bounty in the land, and then there was going to be seven years of famine like they'd never seen before, which would consume the seven years of harvest. And Joseph goes on and says, this is what you need to do. You need to put somebody in charge that while we're in this time of great harvest, they'd put some things in the bank. They'd save up in the storehouses so when the famine comes, we'll be ready. Pharaoh says, I haven't met anybody as smart as you. You've got the job. So Joseph finds himself number two in all of Egypt, answering only to Pharaoh, given an Egyptian name which basically means the saviour of the world. There's a whole lot of Bible study you can do later on here. But, and finds himself in that incredible place of authority. The seven years of plenty come along. They store up the storehouses with so much stuff that Joseph gave up counting it. For the first while, they all had clipboards and they were recording barrels and sacks and, and factories and units and all this stuff. But eventually they said, there's just too much. We can't count that high. They had so much stuff. But then the famine came, as he said it would. And the famine was severe. And the Egyptians began to run out of food. And eventually they came, and they came to buy. It reached a point where the Egyptians actually sold their houses and lands and themselves to Pharaoh. And what came about because of that is a taxation system. Joseph said, okay, you belong to Pharaoh now. From now on, whenever you grow things, this much goes to, like tax. I don't even know why I brought that up. But pay your taxes. Um, but the thing is, the famine didn't just affect Egypt. 
because the famine began to affect Jacob and all of Joseph's brothers who were down away across the land. And Jacob says, I've heard there's food in Egypt. See, all of this God has just nudged and shaped and propped. And, and so he sends his sons with the little bit of money. That, well, they had money, but they didn't have a lot in the way of gifts. To offer. They come down. And ten brothers, because Benjamin was kept at home because Jacob didn't want to lose the other little baby brother. Ten brothers come down and stand before a strange Egyptian that they do not recognize, wearing Egyptian clothes with an Egyptian haircut, speaking the Egyptian language, and he is their brother. And he does not reveal himself, but he actually deals with them quite harshly. He's testing them. He accuses them of being spies. You're spies. Oh, no, no, we're not spies. We're, we're, you know, all sons of one man. There was 12 of us and one's gone, but that's another story. And, and he knows the whole story. But they don't know that he knows. It's one of those awkward situations. And this goes on, and Joseph tests them backwards and forwards. And, and at one, one point, I'm probably getting some of this backwards for the sake of time, but he, he says... You, you're going to prove to me that what you say is the truth. I'm going to keep one of you in prison while the rest go back and bring the younger brother to prove that you're not making this up. And they're like, and they start to say to each other, this is on us because we killed Joseph or we sold our brother. The brother's standing there going, you better believe it's on you. And so all of this is going on and finally they go back to Jacob. Simeon is locked up in the prison. The other brothers go back to Jacob. They open their sacks. They find out that, that Joseph has given them grain and the money is still there. They're just like, can this get worse? They go back to Jacob and they tell him the story. We met this man. We don't know what his problem was, but he really didn't like us. But our money's in our bags. And he said, if we want to come back, we have to bring Benjamin. And Jacob said, it's not happening. I've lost one son. You are not taking Benjamin. Not happening. He just shut the conversation down. But the problem was the food ran out. The food starts to run out. And so eventually Jacob says, you boys need to go get some more food. And Judah, read it, it's Judah, comes back to his dad and says, that man, that nasty Egyptian man, he said, don't come back without your little brother. So we can't get more food unless we take Benjamin. And Jacob is wrestling between his love for Benjamin and the fact that they've got to eat. And Judah says to his father, I will bear responsibility for my brother. I will bear responsibility for him. He said, put me in that place of responsibility. And then you read it. Finally, Jacob basically has no choice. He goes down. He, he, he surrenders, he yields, and Benjamin goes with his brothers back to Egypt. Now, there's a happy reunion as Simeon is brought out of prison. They're glad he's still alive. We don't really know how long that period was. Joseph sees his baby brother Benjamin, who he hasn't seen for some time, and he asks them, is this the brother that you spoke of? And they say, yeah, this is him. And, and the, the backwards and forwards, and, and he, he brings them in for dinner and sits them in birth order around the table from the oldest to the youngest, which probably freaked them out. And Benjamin gets the hugest plate of food. All the others get an entree and he gets, you know, or you can eat buffet on his plate. And there's, all this is going on. And, and again, there's more testing. And you can read the whole story, but they, they, they give them more food and they put Joseph's personal cup in Benjamin's sack. 
and they leave. And when they leave town and they're half an hour down the highway, Joseph sends the soldiers after them. And they say, you've stolen from the king. And they say, why would we do that? Whoever's stolen from the king, let him be found guilty and punished. And they open the sacks. And right there in Benjamin's sack is the king's cup. It's Pharaoh's, sorry, not Pharaoh, Joseph's cup. And they're brought back in before Joseph. And they, by this point, they, have, they don't know what's left to say. It's just, it's just been one disaster after another. But if you read it, let's, let's, let's have a look there. Bless the Lord. find the right passage of scripture so in the beginning of chapter 44 is is when they put Joseph's silver cup in Benjamin's sack and then they're brought back in verse 14 of Genesis 44 and it says, And Judah and his brethren came to Joseph's house, for he was yet there, and they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said unto them, What deed is this that you have done? What you not that such a man and I can certainly divine? Didn't you know that I'd catch you? And Judah said, What shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak? How shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of thy servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also with whom the cup is found. Then he said, God forbid that I should do so. In other words, Joseph says, no, no, I don't want all of you. He said, but the man in whose hand the cup is found, he shall be my servant, and the rest of you can go back to your dad. Now, the brothers of Genesis 37 would have got on their horses, donkeys, whatever they were riding, and said, we're out of here. We'll just have to tell dad another story. But you see, there's a change that takes place here. In verse 18, it says, Then Judah came near unto him and said, O my Lord, let thy servant, I pray thee, speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not thine anger burn against thy servant, for thou art even as Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have ye a father or a brother? And we said unto my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age, a little one. And his brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother, and his father loveth him. And thou saidst unto thy servants, Bring him down unto me, that I may set mine eyes upon him. And we said unto my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said, Unless he comes down, you can't see my face again. And you read on, it tells the story of how Jacob, Jacob said, You have to go. And, and in verse 27, Judah says, And thy servant, my father said unto us, You know that my wife bare me two sons, and the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn in pieces, and I saw him not since. And if you take this also from me, and mischief befall him, you shall bring me down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to thy servant, my father, and the lad be not with us, seeing that his life is bound up in the lad's life. He said, If I go home to my father, to Jacob, and Benjamin is not with me, my father will die. And so you read on, verse 32, Judah speaking about himself says, For thy servant became surety or guarantee for the lad unto my father, saying, If I bring him not unto thee, then I shall bear the blame to my father forever. Now therefore, I pray thee, let thy servant, let me abide instead of the lad, a bondman to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brethren. 
For how shall I go up to my father, and the lad be not with me? Lest peradventure I see the evil that shall come on my father. Amen. The Judah of Genesis 37 was not concerned about his father's well-being or what his father cared about, nor was he cared about his brother. He was interested in making little money to the point that he was willing to betray his brother and sell him as a slave to make that money. And there's a reason that it's Judah that fills this role. You see, Judah, it's Judah that Jesus comes through. The Bible talks about him being the lion of the tribe of Judah, but, but what we also see here is if Judah is, by his name's meaning, a type of praise and worship, in the beginning of the narrative, we see corruption. We see a person that's only interested in themselves. But through this process, through this process, what we see is that Judah changes. And that suddenly that one who is symbolic of worship, it's no longer about him. But he puts himself in the place of responsibility to his father. And also says to Joseph, let me be a slave instead of my brother. And so what you see here is Judah's love for his father causes him to be willing to suffer for his brethren. And we see worship find itself on the correct platform. But then it goes a step further because when his worship is right and balanced and born out of a love for the father, the wall between them and Joseph is torn down. Because it's at that point, it's at that point that Joseph can't keep it in anymore. It's right then when he says to the Egyptians, everybody out, all of you out except for his brothers. And he reveals himself. And he says, I am Joseph. Your brother does my father still live. And they say, and they become afraid. And he says, no, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And God restores brethren to each other and to their father. And if our worship, hallelujah, if our worship is on a corrupt platform, it dishonors our father, it destroys our brethren. But if we can get it right... If we can have it with a right heart because we love the Father. Hallelujah. Brothers that have been damaged, that have been destroyed, can say, does my Father still live? Is God still on the throne? Is my Father still in His house? And we can say, your Father still lives. He still lives. And Joseph was reunited with Jacob. Lift your hands and worship Him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus. Hallelujah. Shakarabayataya. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus. Oh, God. 
Cast, if I could have you on the piano, please. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Just give me a couple of minutes and then we're going to pray. There are some things you can't fix. There are some walls you can't tear down. Some you can and some you should. If you can, you should. Let me make that very clear. But if you will keep your worship on a right platform, if we want to worship together because of our love for the Father, God can restore brethren, bring a family back together. Because what happened was, Joseph said, go and get Dad. Get all the others and bring them here. Tell Dad I'm alive and I'm going to take care of him. And they went and they told Jacob, and I don't know how they explained the previous story, but they told Jacob that Joseph lives. And Jacob is overwhelmed and struggles to agree with it, struggles to accept it. Finally, he says, I will see my son. And basically he says, I'll die a happy man. And he brings him down, and there's, there's the story of their reunion that I could read it every day for the rest of my life, and it would still stir my heart. But... You see, in the midst of all of that, there's a great, there's about 70 souls, I think it is, come with Jacob. There's one little boy in that mix named Perez. He's born out of sin, born out of dysfunction. And under all of that, when that worship was sorted out, the lineage of the Messiah was preserved. It's not just about, you see, when we worship God with a right heart and a right spirit, it's not just about the right now. It's about the what's coming. And you cannot fix every situation that is in your life, but if you keep your worship right and pray and seek God's face. There may be a brother or a sister that's at odds that might come back and say, is God still real? Does my father still live? Let's stand together this morning.